0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to do 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 16. We'll take up the very controversial subject of the women's head covering. The issue that has perplexed so many people for so long, I'm going to take a stab at it. We start with 1 Corinthians 11:1, remembering that our context was, Paul just finished out the last chapter, talking about his three-chapters-long discussion about not making the weak stumble, mainly by eating idle meat. Meat sacrificed to idols in front of someone who might find that objectionable and who might find a scruple in his conscience about it. And so when Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I also imitate Christ, he's referring to the context, which is you need to imitate me and forego certain rights I have. For example, the right to be supported as a missionary. I forego that right because it's going to cause people to stumble. They're going to think that I'm doing it for money, and that's going to cause people to stumble. I don't need idle meat, if necessary, to keep people from stumbling. So imitate me. Do the same thing. Now, the fact that this verse 11.1 is put at the beginning of chapter 11 is extremely problematical. As Adam Clark says, this verse certainly belongs to the preceding chapter and is here out of all proper place and connection. And I think he's exactly right. If it was in the previous chapter, the verse would be right after First 1 Corinthians 10.33, which says, Just as I also try to please people in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. In other words, he's to the weak, he's weak. To the strong, he's strong. To the Jew, he's a Jew. To the Gentile, he's a Gentile. Because secondary things, are things that are controversial and not moral, He's going to throw those away because he doesn't care because they get in the way of his main goal, which is to spread the gospel. Now, notice that Paul is an apostle, had a lot of confidence in his authority, his moral authority. He had no qualms about asking people to follow his example. So I asked the question, application point, should we ask other people to follow our example? Do we have that kind of confidence? How about if somebody asked you to follow you, to follow him? Should you follow his example? Well, the answer to that is sure. If they aren't a guru and there's a lot of gurus out there, people that pretend they know everything. I had somebody come up to me one time after a conference and wanted me to move. No, he wanted to move into my neighborhood so he could disciple me. Almost threw up on the spot. So no, that's not what Paul's talking about. Because you know he says, imitate me as as I also imitate Christ. Well, if I got a Christian guy that's imitating Christ, I don't mind imitating that Christian guy. But if he's not imitating Christ, he's just he's a guru. He's trying to pretend that he is the big shot, not Jesus. Well, then I don't follow him. So we need to be careful about taking this in context. 1 Corinthians 11 2. Paul continues, Now I praise you because you always remember me and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now this is interesting. He's praising the Corinthians. Let's see if I can bring out from my memory all the things the Corinthians have done wrong. They had factions. They abused the Lord's supper. They got drunk at the Lord's Supper. They didn't wait for the poor people to eat at the Lord's Supper. They didn't do church discipline against a guy that was sleeping with his stepmother. They were suing one another. They had wrong doctrines about the resurrection. Did I miss something? Probably so I can't even think. Oh, they were weak in doctrine. They, were, they needed to eat meat, and they were drinking milk as spiritual influence. They were carnal. On and on and on and on and on. You know, they just were doing so many bad things. But Paul takes the time here to say, Now I praise you because you always remember me, and you keep the traditions. Really? Well, the question is, is what kind of traditions did, he keep? did they keep? John Gill can think of two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism, maybe they did okay. The Lord's Supper, well, they screwed that up big time. I don't know why Gil even says the Lord's Supper. Getting drunk, eating before the whole church was there, showing disunity in the body of Christ and creating disunity. But anyway, Paul is very, very careful to praise this church that was failing so miserably, and I think that's a good thing to do. I just gave advice to a a Christian woman who was having trouble in her marriage. I said, you know, find something good that the guy's doing. Yeah, I know he's doing a lot of bad things, and he was. Irresponsible things, not immoral things, but just irresponsible things. I said, just find something good and praise him. That's good human nature, especially when you're dealing with women to men. But it's also in in general. It's a good thing to do. Try to find something good and praise him. Now, when Paul says, "You Corinthians keep the traditions that I delivered to you," we need to remember something. There's two kinds of traditions traditions there's a the good apostolic traditions which are good and then the pharisaical traditions which are bad we're so used to hearing jesus condemn the pharisees traditions in the gospels that we don't often think that it's okay to keep good traditions we have to make the decisions in fact i think the niv here has teachings instead of traditions which is a very loose translation it's misleading really because tradition traditions refers not only to teaching but also to actions and we're supposed to keep both, both what Paul did, we're supposed to follow his example and what he did, as well as what he taught. That has huge implications for church government because there's so many things that churches did, churches that Paul established, things that they did that he didn't give positive commands to do. And so if we just look at the church that he did and follow the pattern, we're doing a lot more than if we just follow the teachings of Paul. So I prefer the translation here, the Homer Christian Study Bible translation of translations of tradition. By the way, the Greek word there is paradosis, which is the accusative plural feminine of paradosis, paradosis. I'm sorry, I say that wrong word wrong every time. Paradosis, and that word, if you look it up in a lexicon, means traditions, not just teachings. Now, because Paul says this, he expects them to keep the traditions. This shows that there was a certain form of church government back then. It was a low church form. It wasn't smells and bells and a bunch of hocus-pocus and liturgy. It wasn't that, but there were certain forms. I say this because in the house church movement, which I was involved with for a long time, I ran into people who were outside of the church system, and they got to be so low church, they were just nutty. Oh, we can do whatever the heck we want. No, you can't. Not if you're going to follow Paul. Paul and be like the Corinthians, and remember him, and keep traditions, whatever those traditions might be. Here's some scriptures pointing out what Paul's attitude was that about that. 1 Corinthians 11, 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Passed on, that's traditions. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And so he's talking about he passed on the tradition of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 15:3. For I passed on to you. Passed on, that means traditions. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So there's teaching that was passed on as well as practiced. practice. Second Thessalonians 2.15 Therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, either by our message or by our letter. That word there is paradosis, paradosis, or paradosis, excuse me, I pronounced it wrong, paradosis which is exactly the same word in 1 Corinthians 11 too, same, gen- same form even, accused of plural feminine, of paradosis. I praise you because you always remember me and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Good traditions. Now there's a good flow here. He starts in verse 1 saying, imitate me. In verse 2, keep the traditions. In chapter 10, he was talking about imitating the practice that he had about eating out of meat, not causing idols to stump, uh, weak Christians to stumble, and he moves on here into this chapter, he's going to start talking about church practice, and he wants all the churches to follow the church practice, about which he is about to give instruction. Now, the two questions of church practice that came up in this chapter, first was the woman's head covering, and second is questions about the Lord's Supper. Now, the woman's head covering is a very, very, very difficult topic. I'm going to show you why as we go through here. Now, what I'm going to do, I'm going to go through these <clears throat> next 14 verses. I'm not going to try to solve the problem. I'm just going to leave it open until I get to the very end. We're going to pick up, deal with some peripheral issues as we go through, because there's a lot of peripheral issues. It's, it, it, it's not as if the main issue wasn't difficult. The peripheral issues are difficult, too. The main issue is, what was Paul talking about, the head covering? Was he talking about a woman's hair, or was he talking about a cloth covering? That's the main issue. And then, of course, a subsidiary issue is, well, how do we apply that in our culture today? That's another big problem. So this is a thorny question. We'll get started. Starting with verse 3, Paul says, But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, before we even get started, we need to point out a very important fact here. This verse is not talking about culture. This verse is talking about ontology, if you'll excuse the philosophical expression. It's talking about reality. It's talking about how things are, how existence is, how God is, how man is. Not talking about culture. It's talking about things that are true for every culture, every time, and every place. Christ is the head of every man. The reason Paul is doing this is he's getting ready to set up his problem of church practice. So he starts out with a basic theology that everyone, every Christian, would have to agree with. Let me give you a sneak preview on how I'm going to solve this thing. I'm going to assume that the contentious people here that were arguing about this head covering, was it hair or was it cloth? And Paul is starting out his discussion by agreeing with these guys and saying, you're right, we need to show women's submission because women's submission is is true, it's real, I agree with you completely. The only thing I disagree with you is how we're going to show it. Are we going to show it by the woman's hair or are we going to show it by a cloth covering? So Paul here, in agreement with his contentious brethren, is setting up some basic theological truths here. When he says that Christ is the head of every man, that, of course, presents a huge problem for feminists because it means that even as Jesus is man's authority, so is the man the head of the woman. That means husband. The husband is the authority of the woman. And we know that feminists don't like that they think that a husband has the responsibility and authority to manage a woman and to control her and control her body and to make her stay barefoot and pregnant for the rest of her life and to whip her with chains and whatever else the feminists want to say. Of course, I'm exaggerating, but not by too much. If you get involved in these arguments, you'll see. I heard the other day a podcast, and this guy's getting ready to teach on the role of women in the church. He spent 15 minutes apologizing oh i just didn't want to do this i asked joe brother joe to do it he said he oh no i'm busy then i asked brother bob to do it oh i'm busy then i asked brother Rick. he goes on and on i said look buddy if you're so intimidated by your culture maybe you ought not to be teaching on this at all i mean paul didn't act like that he just taught it he didn't worry about his culture good heavens he had you talk about cultural problems his jewish culture was ready to string him up he didn't talk like a bunch of wusses just because the culture happens to be against us on a certain point, he stood up against his culture. Why can't we do the same? Instead, of, oh, look down at the ground between our toes and wring our hands, and say, "I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to tell you that men are have authority over women." Well, I'm not going to do that. Paul didn't do that. He says, "I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of the woman. That means he's the authority of the woman." Now, I don't think that's hard. I'm going to. Submit to you several feminist objections to that, and alternate interpretations that they offer. Before I do that, let's talk about authority. Ephesians 1:21, 22. For above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age but also in the one to come. That's Jesus, and He put everything under His feet and appointed Him. God put everything under His feet and appointed Him, Christ, as head over everything for the church. So Christ is the church authority. Just as Paul says here, Christ is the head of every man. Ephesians five twenty two through twenty three not is not talking in general. Paul is talking about the marriage situation. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Straightforward, no problem till the feminists come along and try to screw up the scripture. Colossians one eighteen. He, Jesus, is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. So there, it's talking about the church, not about the marriage situation. Jesus is head of the body. Colossians 2.10, And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. And Jesus is the authority over every demon or every angel, whatever ruler and authority might mean there. Okay, well, that's straightforward. Here's what the feminists like to say. Here's a suggestion from the NIV study Bible. It's honor. We know that Christ is the honor of every man or every man honors christ, every christian man honors christ and the man is the head of the woman so women honor men but they don't have but christ but the man does not have authority over the woman because that's what they're getting at say we want to get around that now of course if you know that christ has authority over the church and that a husband has authority over over the wife then the honor goes along with authority so that's generally generally not a problem but feminists, I think, like to split that out and say, well, no, we can have honor, but we don't have authority that goes with that honor because we don't want a man to have authority over his wife. Well, let's maybe take up the feminist position here for the sake of argument and say, well, it is possible we could honor a retired politician who has no authority over us. Yeah, that's possible. Well, but folks, this is how I would answer that. Jesus ain't retired. He's still an authority over us, and a husband is still an authority over his wife. And I don't give a ding-dong frip in Gehenna about what feminists say about that, evangelical feminists or otherwise. Now let's go to the main dodge that evangelical feminists use to get around this embarrassing verse for them. Christ is the head of every man. They say head means source. Well, as Piper and Grudem in their great book, Discovering, uh, Defending Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, I forgot the exact title of it. I've read the books excellent published in the 1980s. As they say about this translation for head meaning source, it has absolutely no authority, as Piper and Grudem say. In fact, I I don't have it in the notes in front of me, but I remember reading in that book that one of those two, Piper and Grudem, I think it was Grudem, had done a computer search on the word in not only Greek literature, not only in the New Testament, but also in secular Greek literature, and couldn't find one instance of where source meant head. It doesn't mean that. It means head. It means authority. All right now that we've taken care of that problem let's point out some truths about this doctrine when it says the man is the head of the woman that does not mean he stands over the woman with a whip and whips the crap out of her no that's not what it means jesus doesn't do that doesn't do that to the church he loves the church he dies for the church paul says in ephesians 5 that's what it means to be the head man is the head of the woman he's supposed to die for her does that sound like somebody just cracking a whip over somebody no, but feminists have abused the concept of authority until we're scared to death of the word because we cave into them like a bunch of wussy pusses. And Paul, of course, is talking about a Christian marriage here because he says Christ, the man is the head of the woman, God is the head of Christ. I mean, it's obvious, he's talking about Christians. Now, in an ideal Christian marriage, and this is an ideal that can be realized in this grubby world, in an ideal Christian world, a Christian wife has no trouble submitting to her husband's authority. Because the more Christ-like husbands are, the easier it is for women to submit to his family leadership. How hard is it for Christians to submit to Christ authority? I know sometimes you have difficulty, but when you learn how great he is and how wonderful he is and how how he loves you and forgives you and all that kind of stuff, you submit to Christ fairly readily. But now if a woman has got some alcoholic, imbibing, pornography, watching, I'm going to watch football all Sunday afternoon and to heck with a family type of husband, well, that's hard to submit to. But if men would act like, be Christ-like, then women could submit easier and the world would be a lot happier place. There'd be less marriage problems and there wouldn't be any feminism. Here's how John Gill puts it. The man is the head of the woman to provide and care for her, to nourish and cherish her, and to protect and defend her against all insults and injuries. Women like that. And even in this feminist age, you can still... I remember talking to young Chinese unmarried women college students because I was teaching college in China. What do you look for in a husband? And they always say they want somebody to protect them. Always. I guess they're less, might be their second language, it might be their culture, but they're less feminist than we are over here. And they'll say things like that with no shame. And they'll also say that they will never marry a man shorter than her. Why? Well, because I want want him to be strong and protect me. I remember one time I was talking to a young 25-year-old Christian woman out in the west of China, Yinchuan, and she was moaning and groaning about the Chinese culture that insisted that, Christ- that husbands had to have a house and a car. She said, it's always material things, always who his family is, how much education he has, how much money is." I'm sick and tired of all those material, non-spiritual criteria for having a husband. I want spiritual criteria. I said, Leif, would you marry somebody shorter than you? And she said, of course not. I laughed. I've been laughing about that for 15 years. I think it was about 10 or 15 years ago that I heard that. I never forgot it. I said, you know, well, why? Because she wants somebody taller than her to protect her. So, it's deep within, at least the Chinese women. I suspect it's within American women, too. All right, another point to make here. Paul says, I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. The Greek word for man, I think it's on air, if I remember correctly, and for woman is gune something like that. I forgot. But Uh, the Greek words are totally ambiguous. The Greek word for man can either be man or husband. The Greek word for woman can be wife or woman. Well, when it says the man is the head of the woman, in my opinion, that's a little misleading translation because that sounds like some other man out there in the world, even if it's a Christian man, and that that could be the authority over my daughter, over my wife, and that ain't going to be. That ain't going to happen. Nobody's going to tell my wife what to do. No man, hey, I'm authority over you. No, sir. I am her authority, not some bozo who thinks he wants to have a power trip. So we need to be careful about understanding what those words mean. And the translation is misleading. I imagine some translations, I didn't check, but some translations would translate that as Christ is the, uh, the, the husband is the head of the wife. I think, it'd be, I think it would be much better, in my humble opinion. Now, one other theological point here, let me make. It says God is the head of Christ. That means God the Father is the authority over God the Son. And you say, wait a minute, these are three equal persons in the Godhead. How can one have authority over the other? Well, if you're talking about while Jesus was in his human state, God had authority over Jesus, there's no controversy. That's called the economic subordination of the Son to the Father, the functional subordination of the Son to the Father. That means Jesus is not less... Worthy than God, but he has less status. God has authority to instruct, to guide, and lead, and so forth. And nobody has a problem with that. But the problem is, is is it the eternal functional subordination of the Son to the Father? While before Jesus became incarnate, and after he's resurrected and in, in heaven as he is now, is he still under the leadership of the Father, or are they co equal? Well, even anti feminists will have a problem with that. I tend to think that it's eternal, but I've listened to a bunch of podcasts moaning and groaning about such heresy, and they were not going to sign this statement, some some pro-complementarian statement or anti-homosexual statement. I can't remember because a lot of the theologians that were behind that statement believed in the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father, and that's heresy. Heresy, heresy! And meanwhile, the homosexuals have taken over the culture. The feminists, the transgenderites, the gender benders, the gender noxies in the gender studies departments in the university have totally taken over the culture. But by golly, we're not going to have somebody sign a, We're not going to sign a statement against all that if one of the people only that drew up the statement believes in the eternal functional subordination of the son to the father. Well, I don't know what the answer to that is, honestly. I don't have time to, I haven't had time to look into that particular controversy. But even if the Son of God is eternally subordinate to the Father, that doesn't mean he is of less worth than the Father. Functionally subordinate means he has a different role. He has a fellowship role rather than a leadership role. Same thing with husbands and wives. A wife ontologically is worth every bit as much as her husband. However, her husband has the role, the function of leading, and the wife has the role, the function of helping. It's the same thing as parents and children. Is a child worth less than his parents? No. But who's the boss? Who's in charge of taking care of the children? The parents are. They're the head of the children. That doesn't mean they're worth more than children. It just means they have a different role. Now, this might, to you, I'm sure you're very sane and rational and logical and you don't think there's any problem with this but i'm going to tell you something feminists do have a problem with it because they are screwed up they have totally imbibed our feminist culture we go to verse 4 first Corinthians 11 every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head well first of all what's head his physical head could be or it could be jesus because jesus is the head of every man or it could be both doesn't really matter. Point is, you're not supposed to pray or prophesy with something on your head. Now, the question is, is why? How does that dishonor Jesus or dishonor the man's head by having something on his head? A covering, if you will. Well, the authorities split over this, and I don't have the answer, but let me give you some options. Here's the NIV Study Bible suggestion, as well as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. In Paul's day, men uncovered their heads in worship. Talking about pagan worship. So... If they went into that pagan worship with their head covered, they would be showing submission to that pagan deity. And so if Christian men came into their worship service with a covered head, they would be doing the same thing that pagans would be doing and thus dishonor their head Christ. All right, that's J, Jameson, Foster, and Brown, the NIV Study Bible's option. Now, John Gill says has a statement that is factually opposite concerning the culture. He said that in Paul's day, men covered their heads to worship pagan gods. And so if you went into your Christian service with your head covered, a man, then you're putting Jesus on the same level as the pagan gods. Well, you see there, it all depends on what the culture did, and I'm not really sure that anybody knows exactly what the culture did. That's a factual question that we, unfortunately, don't have access to, not really, not here in the 21st century. So I don't know who's right about that. Here's another argument. John Gill says in Paul's day, the Jews covered their heads to worship Yahweh. And so if Christians covered their heads, it wouldn't be that they were honoring a pagan God or doing the same things that pagans do and thus dishonoring Christ, but rather it would be putting Christians back in bondage to Old Testament legalism because the Jews covered their heads in worship. Alright, so the second object is pagans covered their heads and if you cover your head like a pagan you'd be doing you'd be acting like a pagan. The third option is Jews cover their head when they worship, so it, you'd be you would be acting like a legalistic Jew by covering your head when you go into a Christian service. Here's a fourth option from John Gill. To cover a man's head it makes the man look guilty, ashamed, and in subjection, in my humble opinion. That's probably what Paul's getting out here. Gil says, it makes the man, uh, f- uh, f- now here's the fifth option, covering the head makes the man look effeminate and unmanly. Well, then you have the questions, maybe back then it did, what about today, do yarmicles and Catholic hats, the meters, or miters, not meters, miters, the yarmicles of the Jews have, the Catholic miters, do those make men look less manly? I don't know, it might be a question of opinion, I think they sort of do, but I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, and of course that's our culture. I don't know what it was like back in the first century A.D. So all of these options are quite speculative as to why. I think the easiest thing to say is it just makes a man look submissive. Well, I mean, think about it. If you watch, we have a, a, a family in our my church now that comes to Sunday every Sunday worship. The women have their head covers, and they look so submissive. Just by it, just looks submissive. Now, if we had men coming to do that, I imagine that if it makes women look submissive, why would it not make men look submissive? I don't know. So I think that's what Paul's talking about. We don't want something on the men's head because they should stand with their brow uncovered, their face before God, because, and not, now somebody might raise a problem here. Well, if men are supposed to be submissive to Christ, maybe they should look submissive. Maybe they should have something on their head. But that's not what Paul's talking about here, not being submissive to Christ, but being submissive to the women in the church. I mean, if a man goes in the church and he, puts a symbol of submission on his head, then that looks like he's submissive because everybody's seeing that. Everybody's looking at it, and he looks submissive. You can't see God, and so when you see the the head covering on the man, and you, think, you don't think, oh, he's being submissive to God. You can't see God, but you can see all the other people in church. He just looks submissive. So I think Paul is saying, look, you wear something on your head, the man looks submissive instead of uh, being a head with authority, and so we're not going to do that. And notice the the situation is every man who prays or prophesies. This is not talking about just wearing a hat into the building. or They didn't have buildings back then. Into the meeting, into the home. Of course, in our culture, we don't do that. Men don't wear hats in the building. I remember I was teach, when I was teaching college years ago, about 20 years ago, every man in my class wore baseball hats. And I said, if I could take those baseball hats, I would. But I didn't have tenure. But the president of the college was teaching a class, and he told me he required every... Male student to take the hat off in the class, and I thought, and I was telling another professor that, and he said, "Yeah, but he's got tenure and you don't." But, but we wanted him to take it off. Doesn't look right to wear a hat in the in the building. But that has nothing to do with this, because this is talking about praying or prophesying with your head covered, not just participating in the in the in the meeting. But I would expect that if you're going to have your head uncovered when you pray to prophesy, you're probably going to have your head uncovered at all other times also. And if you have your head covered when you're praying or prophesied, you're going to have your head covered most all the time. Also, we go to verse 5, 1 Corinthians 11. But every woman, that but is contrasting with the man who has his head covered as shamefully, but every woman who prays or prophesied with her head uncovered dishonors her head. She does the same thing as the man does by having her head uncovered. She dishonors her head. Again, the head could be in her own head, or it could be in Christ, or it could be both. I suspect it's Christ. She is... Since that is one, the woman with the uncovered head, that is one and the same as having her head shaved. Now, when you have your head shaved, a woman has her head shaved that in Paul's day this was a sign of loose morals for a woman. That's what they did to shame prostitutes and such. She would be forced to shave her head because of prostitution or adultery, maybe. Then I've studied Bible points that out. Or if a woman was in open rebellion against her husband, sometimes they would shave her head. And so Paul's saying, that's a shameful situation. So whatever it is that Paul's talking about with a woman praying with her head uncovered, it's just as bad as being a prostitute or just as bad as being a rebellious wife. B- serious business. Again, in my opinion, he's agreeing with the contentious folks who arguing with him about the head covering, about what the head covering was, but he's not disagreeing with the fact that a woman needs to have her head covered somehow, whether it's with hair or cloth. All right, now, this is the first mention, I think, that we've mentioned head covering for the woman. The perennial question is, is Paul just talking about his culture only, or is he talking about everywhere, for all times, all places, all sexes, everybody? Well, it's universal, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Why do I say that? Because Paul appealed to creation, not culture. Just two verses later, in 1 Corinthians 11:7 through 9 he says this, a man, in fact, should not cover his head because he is God's image and glory, but woman is man's glory for man did not come from woman, but woman came from man, and man was not created for woman but woman for man. He's talking about creation, man created and woman created, created, created. that has nothing to do with culture folks so he now, I could give you a contrary argument and say well that that's also universal that Paul's talking about, but maybe he's using a universal principle to deal with a cultural situation of head coverings and we're not in that same cultural situation. Actually, although I hate that cultural argument all the time, I wouldn't argue with that too hard. That could be. However, Paul sure hits this creation argument pretty hard as we'll see later on as we get to these verses. He talk, he says nature tells you that long hair in a woman is honorable and short hair in a man is dishonorable. Nature teaches you that. And the angels are upset when the woman's hair when the woman is not covered. Angels, that's not cultural. He's hitting that argument pretty hard, so I have a hard time when people say this is a cultural thing. All right, now, when Paul says that every woman who prays prophesies with, prophesies with her head uncovered, he's referring to his own culture, where it was the custom for women in public to be covered. The Greeks, the Romans, the Jews all covered their women in public, at least all the movies I ever saw, they were covered. Adam Cart points out this fact. John Gill allows that some heathen nations might allow their women to go out uncovered, but in a pagan worship service they were always covered okay so then the next question you one might want to ask well if that was the universal practice and women always had their heads covered why would women in corinth when they're praying and prophesy why would they take their head covering off their cloth head covering off why would they do that everybody nobody else did that well here's a speculation it could be that the women felt free in christ They're not bound by their culture. After all, Christianity in many ways is countercultural, and maybe that was just another way of saying, hey, I'm countercultural. I'm going to take it off. I don't believe that's the answer, though. I believe that what was happening here is that these contentious brethren that I'm going to get ready to talk about in a minute, they came in and they said, we need to show women's submission, and women's submission needs to be shown by cloth covering, and Paul, because they need to have a covering, and Paul agrees with that. Yeah, they need to have a covering, guys, but they already got one. Say, here. So lay off. Covering back then was a universal sign of modesty. Here's a scripture, Genesis 24:65, And Rebecca asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? The servant answered, It is my master. That's Isaac. So she took her veil and covered herself. She wanted to be modest before Isaac. And so that shows that covering the face, covering the head, same thing. It's a sign of modesty. Covering. First Corinthians 11:6. So if a woman's head... Paul continues, is not covered, her hair should be cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, she would be covered. Now, cut off is a sign of disgrace just like shave. Shave is just an extreme form of cutting off the hair short. And that was a sign of impropriety, sexual impropriety and shame. And so Paul is saying, look, if a woman's head is not covered, it's the same thing. It's a shameful thing, just like if a woman's head is cut off or if her head is shaved. Now, that's a pretty strong metaphor. Paul's very concerned about a woman being uncovered in church. She'd be just like a prostitute if she's not. Now, I have a question for you, and I'm going to answer it later on, but here's the question. If you take the head covering as hair, so if a woman's head is not covered, in other words, she's shaved bald, her hair should be cut off, well, how can her hair be cut off if it's already cut off? If a woman has a bald head, her hair should be cut off. How is that possible? She's already bald if the woman's head covering is her hair. I guess you could say if a woman's, head, a woman's head is not covered with long hair, her hair should be cut short. Well, then why would you want to take long hair and cut it off and make it short and make it shameful? It makes no sense. I'll solve this problem later when we get to the end of, the, of chapter 11. Again, excuse me, the end of uh, when we get to around verse 15 and 16. 1 Corinthians 11:7 Paul continues a man in fact should not cover his head because he is God's image and glory but woman is man's glory we're still assuming the occasion is praying and prophesying man should not cover his head when he does that now this idea of glory let me just read you what Gill says a man radiates and displays the glory of God that he received by being made in God's image so you cover your head you cover the glory you should be reflecting glory to the people around as people look at you as being made in the image of God, so his head should not be covered. That's John Gill's idea of what why he shouldn't cover his head, because God's glory can't be radiated. Second option is from Adam Clark. He says a man's head should not be covered when he's praying or prophesy because it shows servitude to other humans. Man like God has power and authority and he's not supposed to show servitude. Now, if the symbolism was to show servitude of God, of course, there'd be nothing wrong with that. But the, point, but the problem is, is he's in church, and he, all people around looking at him, and they can see, and it looks like he's showing servitude. He's acting like a woman, in other words, which means he's not showing leadership. Third option is Adam Clark. The reason a man shouldn't have his head covered is because it shows that his conscience is overwhelmed by guilt. It shows shame, guilt, Maybe. I think it's the authority issue, though. That seems to be the theme here. Right. Covering your head looks like you're not in authority. Now, why should the woman cover her head? Again, whether it's with hair or, socks or cloth covering, we're going to take that up later. But why in general should she have her hair covered, which nobody disagrees with? Right. It's because the covering symbolizes submission to authority, to other people, not to God. Of course, she's in submission to God, just like the man is. But the point is, as we reflected submission to other people. The man has his head uncovered to show he's not submitted to other people, other women in the church, and the women have their head covered to show that they're not trying to run things. Now, the idea of glory here, man is God's image and glory. Man was created in God's image and thus received God's glory directly. Woman receives God's image and glory indirectly, or at least, excuse me, I shouldn't say image that was a no-no. Let me erase that in my notes. Women receive God's glory indirectly. Image, she received the image of God the same as man did at creation, as we're going to see in just a minute when I quote you the relevant verse in Genesis. So man got glory from God directly, and then woman receives her glory from man through the mediation of man. So in the man's case, glory passed from God to man. In the woman's case, glory passed from the man to the woman as Jameson, Foster, and Brown point out, but the image of God, the image of God, not the glory of God, but the image of God did not pass that way. Woman is created in the image of God as well as the image of man, as well as the image of man is created in the image of God. Jameson, Foster, and Brown point that out in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness they will rule the fish of the sea, that's man and woman, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. For God created man in his own image, he created him in the image of God, he created them male and female. Male and female he created in the image of God. A lot of people need to like to emphasize that, and I'll emphasize it too. Women are created in the image of God just like men, but that doesn't mean that they have The role, the leadership role is merely a functional role. It doesn't make any difference. I mean, you know, think about people get upset about that. How many times you've been in a business situation or a work situation where somebody else was your boss and on a work team or just your boss? Is that person worth more than you? Now, a lot of times he's a jerk, but he's still got more authority than you. He has a different role. He doesn't have more worth than you, but he has a different role than you. And it's your job to obey the chain of command. Just as simple as that. We don't get upset over that, but we, when we start talking about men and women, oh, everybody gets upset, and it's because the abuse is governing the use here, because a lot of men abuse their authority, and act like a bunch of horse's asses. There's a proverb in Chinese, if if you can find a reliable man, I can find you a mother pig that can climb a tree, and <laughs> so a lot of women react against that, they say, I don't want a man to be my boss. Remember, we're talking about Christian marriages here, where Christian men act like Christian men ain't like Christ as head of the church. As Christ is the head of church, so is man the head of his wife. As Christ, Christ Christ-like. I've summarized all this glory business by saying this. Man reflects God's glory and thus shares God's glory. Woman reflects man's glory and thus shares both man's glory and God's glory. 1 Corinthians 11 verses 8 through 9. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. And man was not created for woman, but woman for man. Woman, of course, came from Adam's rib, Genesis two twenty-three, and the man said, "This one, at least, is bone of, my, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This woman shall be called woman, for she was taken from him." That's what woman means. From man is the literal translation of woman, the Hebrew for woman, and even the name of woman reflects the prior creation of man. I just let say that in case a feminist, in case you want to bug a feminist. And Paul says, man was not created for woman, woman for man. Ooh, okay, that sounds like everything's for the man. That only thing that's important is the man. But we've got to remember, he immediately balances it out in verse 10. Excuse me. In verse 11, where Paul says, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as women came, a woman came from a man, so man comes through women. And all things come from God. In other words, men are dependent on women too. We wouldn't be born without them. So Paul balances off what he says here later to show that he's not trying to say that one sex, one gender is more important than another. How is woman created for man? John Gill says this, quote, to be and help meet for him who was already created, to be a companion and associate of his, both in religious worship and in civil life, and for the procreation and education of children. Oh, children. What an unfeminist thought children. 1 Corinthians 11 10. Well, those were more enlightened days, the 1800s. 1 Corinthians 11 10. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now here's an introductory note to this verse. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. There are few portions in the sacred writings that have given rise to such a variety of conjectures and explanations and are less understood than this verse. And the other verse that he mentions is the baptism for dead verse in 1 Corinthians 15:29. Those are two tough ones, absolutely. Adam Clark says, "quote Almost every critic and learned man has a different explanation." Well, so I guess I can give my opinion too. Not going to, there's not going to be anybody that contradicts me. There won't be anybody to back me up, but there won't be anybody to contradict me either. And again, remember here that woman could also mean wife. Although I don't think he's talking about wife. He's talking about women because he's talking about church service here, women in general. Now, it's because of the angels that she's supposed to have something on her head. Now, the something, according to the Holman Christian Study Bible, is a symbol of authority. A symbol of is in brackets. It's not in the Greek. So, it could be read like this. This is why a woman should have authority on her head. So, you know, it could be actual authority or it could be a symbol of authority. I think Holman Christian Study Bible is right by interpolating here a symbol of authority. Well, whatever that is, we'll talk about that in a minute, but it's because of the the angels that the woman needs this. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to give you, let's see, five options. Pick your choice. I report, you decide. It's because of good angels, option number one. Why might good angels want to see the women covered in the worship service? Well, they need to be respected. The angels worship God. There's submission to God. And when women are worshiping Jesus, they need to be in submission to him, and they need to show it. And this covering of the face is like a head covering with a veil on it. Isaiah 6, 1 and 2. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. With two wings he covered his face. Why? To show modesty. Covering is modesty. Angels and so therefore, this is to prove that angels instinctively know that humility is proper before God, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown put it. And so this is angels know what submission and humility means, and women should do that to show. That's reasonable for me. Here's another option. It's talking about bad demons. Women should have a symbol of women should have authority on her head, should have a symbol of authority on her head, in other words, a cloth covering because of the demons. So the demons won't lust after her. That's Tertullian's idea, which I consider to be absolutely absurd. Here's another option. The angels are messengers because of the angels. Excuse me, they're young men because young men are like angels. Because of the young, angelic young men there, they're graceful and comely like angels. Women should cover their heads with cough to keep the young men from lusting after them. That's John Gill's suggestion. I don't know if he believes it. I hope not because it's absurd. The fourth option is to translate angels as messengers. And messengers could be preachers of the world. But why would women want to keep their head covers because of the preachers of the word? Again, to keep them from lusting after their feminine form. That's absolute nonsense. Now, here's one that is, it's a stretch, but it makes a little, a little bit more sense, I think. This is John Gill and Adam Clark suggest this. Back then, messengers were sent by a man to ask a girl's hand in marriage. I guess the men were too chicken to do it. (laughs) So they would send a messenger, and the woman could accept that messenger by covering her head. Yes, I modestly accept your request for marriage and puts the veil over her head. Or she could keep the covering off of her head and say, no, I'm not going to do it. But again, what does that got to do with the context? Well, the answer could be just as as accepting and accepting the marriage proposal the bride-to-be covers her head in feminine submission. Likewise, in church, the obedient Christian wife covers her head in feminine submission. Well, that's very clever. I don't think that's what it is, but it's very clever. That's the fourth option I've got. I'm sure there's probably 10 other that I haven't discovered yet. Fifth option is the rulers of the church. The angels are the rulers of the church. This is why women should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the rules of the church. They'd be upset if women were not showing submission. Well, I don't know. I just think it's because angels in heaven like submission. That's the best solution. But again, I wouldn't defend, I wouldn't stand on a, uh, I wouldn't hide behind a pillbox and try to defend that with my life because I really don't know. But well, that's my speculation. And it doesn't really matter why the angels want to do this. We need to know one thing here angels are not cultural. This is universal. It has to do with reality, not culture, ontological, eternal reality, not culture. And whatever the symbol of authority is, Assuming it's a symbol of authority, the general point is a woman should show submission in the church service. That's the main point. And again, I think Paul is agreeing with his critics. His critics are saying we need to show submission. Paul says I agree with you. We need to show submission, but I just don't agree with you on how we're going to show women submission. We now go to verses 11 through 12, first Corinthians 11. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. But just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. In other words, we're all in this thing together, in God's business together. Men and women, men are not more important than women. Women are not more important than men. Listen, just we tend to think that the leadership role is more important. Really? Why do we think that? No leader ever did anything without an assistant. How many generals do you see without any aid to camps, aides of camp, or whatever you call them, adjutants? You don't see that. No... Have you ever tried doing carpentry work or, or manual labor building a house? I've done some of that. And I was always the helper because I'm I, not good with tools. But the people working on the house can't do anything without somebody helping them. They need another set of hands. It's built into the universe, folks. It's built into creation. Leaders need followers and helpers. And women are very important just because they don't get a lot of glory from men who think, "Well, oh, I've got the lead to be anything. And the way Paul shows this, he says, Woman is not independent of man. In other words, a woman needs a man to look after her, to be your head, take care of her, and so forth. But likewise, man is not independent of woman because man comes through women. Without women, men wouldn't even be here. You ever saw any man without a mother? Doesn't happen. (laughs) And, of course, women are here because man was here first. Woman wouldn't be here if Adam hadn't been created first. Well, that's nice. But the next man that comes down the pike, he's not going to be here unless a a woman came first because he's got to have a mother. Here's the way John Gill puts it, quote, that he might not be too much elated with himself and his superiority over the woman and look with any degree of disdain and contempt upon her and treat her with indifference and neglect and partly to comfort the woman that she might not be dejected with the condition and circumstance in which she was. In other words, Paul is saying this partly to comfort the woman so she won't be dejected by having to, 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 to fulfill the subordinate role. The fellowship role, the helping role, since the one is not without the other, nor can they be so truly comfortable and happy as not the man without the woman, who was made for an helpmeet for him. Yeah. Notice that all this is in the Lord. In the Lord, this is talking about husbands and wives operating in God's will. If they do, they will complement each other. They will not try to dominate each other and try to usurp each other's position. Not the typical marriage. Prop- Listen, I used to practice divorce law. I've gone to marriage conferences. I watch Lifetime movies and. My gosh, when men and women start fighting in the marriage situation, there is nothing worse. It's like World War Four. But in the Lord, that ought not to be that way. So let's summarize this. All these things, all men and women both come from God, which shows that the whole point is that both the superior and inferior statuses are from God, the leadership role and the helping role. Everything works together according to his plan. Both men and women are equal in worth before God. They are not equal in function and not equal in authority, but they are equal in worth, just like parents and children are equal in worth before God, although children are not equal in function nor equal in right with their parents. All right, we move now to verses 14 and 15, and here Paul is going to start disagreeing with his contentious critics. He's agreed with them in general on the need for covering and the submission of women. But now he's going to start disagreeing with him on the nature of that covering. First Corinthians 11:14 through 15, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. Now, first, let's notice the word nature. Does not even nature itself teach you, Paul says. That's a problem right there. Who think that it's ancient culture that required the covering and not nature itself, which God created. Nature is not culture. Nature is inborn. It's genetic. Culture is learned and acquired. All right, so how does nature teach us that long hair is a disgrace to a man? Well, we can start out by saying that a vast majority, maybe all of the people groups of the world, men's hair is relatively shorter than women's. Now, I don't mean that every man's hair is shorter than every woman's hair. Of course not. But in general, it means that if you took a sample of the men and a sample of the women, the overwhelming majority of men would have shorter hair than the overwhelming majority of women, speaking in general. Now, there's problems with that, though. As John Gill points out, all nations don't have short hair on men. The Jews and the Greeks did, and that's who Paul was referring to. He tries to limit to what Paul was talking about to Jews and Greeks. But Adam Clark notes evidence to the contrary. The Greeks in Corinth were noted for their long hair. So not even in Greece and Rome did everybody, all the men have short hair. Now, here's how I could respond to Clark. Long means relative to other men in other cultures. In other words, if you're going to say that Greeks had long hair, it might be long to other men in other cultures. But the Corinthian women might have had even longer hair than the Corinthian men. So it, the men's hair in Corinth would be short relative to the Corinthian women. And Clark gets this from a reference from Homer, that the Corinthians were long-haired. Could be Homer was making fun of (laughs) them. He might not have been stating a fact. We also have the Jews under a Nazarite vow. They had long hair, but as Adam Clark says, this was supposed to show humiliation, not glory. So if we're speaking universally, the nature of man does not, and we can still complain against the idea that nature teaches us that men's hair is a shame, is that the nature of man does not require short hairs. We look at all men universally all over the globe because there are some men that have long hair. Well, first of all, I would not take it universally all over the world. I would take it relative to a man's individual culture. If you drop down in any culture on this planet, I can almost guarantee you most of the men will have shorter hair than the women. If you go to China, the men have shorter hair than the women in general. If you go to America, if you go to Europe, if you go to Africa, I've been to all those places. You know that. It's It doesn't matter whether it's minority groups or majority culture. It doesn't matter. The men's hair is shorter. That's nature, folks. That doesn't mean that every single man's hair is shorter than every single woman's. It just means in general. I remember one time I was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, my seminary, and I was talking to this real smart girl. God, that girl was smart. She had a 1600 on her SAT. And... She had short hair, but it was short compared to other women. It wasn't short compared to mine, but it was relatively short hair for women. And I didn't really refine my thinking on this too much, and I was kind of batting it around with her. And she said, I can prove that short hair is not, that long hair on women is not better than short hair. I said, how can you prove that? And she pulled out a picture of her when she had long hair. Oh, it was ugly. Gosh. And I looked at her, and I said, you got a point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just you know, a picture. I couldn't argue with her. I said, "You got a point." Well, as I thought, about, I've been thinking about it for years. Afterwards, I think the answer is, in general, in general, women's hair is longer than men. You can't deny that, and that's nature. That's the way we are. Despite our culture, it's just everywhere, all over the globe. That doesn't mean that individually, you might find a situation where a man's hair ought to be, might be longer than a woman's, an individual woman's hair. And also, not only do you have to compare in general within a culture, but you have to go between cultures. In other words, you might have a situation where in one culture, a man's hair is long all through that culture, and then you go to another culture, and the man's hair is short. So in that case, men's hair would be long, but in that individual culture, it's long relative to outside cultures, but it's not long relative to the women inside the culture. So anyway, that's the best I can do on that. The NIV Study Bible has a note. Believers must be conscious of how their actions appear in their culture in light of what is considered to be honorable behavior. But the NIV Study Bible doesn't explain why Paul said nature. He didn't say culture. He said, does not nature teach you? Adam Clark says nature and the apostles speak the same language. Now, what is this disgrace that nature nature teaches us about men with long hair? John Gill says long hair makes a man look unmanly and womanish. Well, if that's the case, and I think it is true, then that would mean that if relatively long hair does not make a man look unmanly, no problem. And I would handle, I can say that because I've noticed that some people with long hair, like in the NBA, a lot of people have long hair in the NBA. I don't think it looks right. I think it looks better if they got short hair. But sometimes you've got these long, especially dreadlocks, for African-Americans with long dreadlocks, they don't look too feminine. They've got tattoos all over themselves, and they are taking offensive files and charging over people, and they look extremely masculine to me. Now, especially if he grows a beard with that long hair, he he doesn't look feminine at all. So I think that's the main, you know, as far as application, make sure you don't look like a woman. Make sure you look like a man. Make sure there's no gender confusion. I remember so well, I was at Expo 72 in 1972. This was at the height of the Jesus movement and also the hippie revolution. And so there was a lot of Christians that it was still infused with certain unbiblical values. And there was a guy there and this teacher was teaching about purity and sexual relationships or something like that and this guy starts telling the teacher that he didn't see why he needed to refrain he says he and his girlfriend were pleasuring themselves i said good heavens man this guy's nuts and then and he's just looking for an excuse so he can satisfy his lust and be a christian at the same time and while i'm thinking all this all of a sudden i looked at him he's got his long curly hair he looks so sweet i said god he got it even look like a man looks like a girl you know, just make sure you don't look like a girl if you're a man. And, and women, if you look like, if you can wear short hair, fine, but don't look like a man. Make sure you still look like a woman and be attracted to a man. No gender confusion in the church. Now, here's another idea when Paul says that nature teaches us that long hair is a disgrace. Paul may have been referring to the way men artificially dress their hair. Now, of course, this is not nature. This is what was done back then in that culture. So, again, I think the argument is weak. But it is kind of interesting. Adam Clark says this, quote, Paul may refer to a, dressed fizz- to a dressed, frizzled, and curled hair, which shallow and effeminate men might have affected in that time, as they do in this. Perhaps there is not a, slight, a sight more ridiculous in the eye of common sense than a high-dressed, curled, cued, and powdered head, with which the operator must have taken considerable pains... And the silly patient lost much time and comfort in submitting to what all but senseless custom must call an indignity and degradation. I love that 19th century rhetoric. He's basically saying these men with their powdered wigs look like a bunch of sissies. But again, that's culturally, it sounds like he's talking about English culture, not ancient Greek culture, which I suppose he doesn't know that much about any more than I do. So, according to nature, long hair in general is a bad thing, short hair, so Paul is, and he's still agreeing with his critics who are saying that we need to show women's submission in the church but now he says something here that shows that now he's going to start disagreeing with him but if a woman is excuse me he says for her hair is given to her as a covering that translation is not as clear the greek word is anti and anti means instead of a covering some translations have it for a covering but instead of a covering it's a much better translation Let's see how many versions I have that translate it that way. I don't have it right in front of me. Later, I'll get to it. For example, I can't go to the conference, where you speak for me, anti-me. And what you're saying is, I can't go to the conference, would you speak instead of me. That's what it means. And so what Paul is saying, look, her hair is giving to her instead of a, and here the covering is a different Greek word. I'll get to this in a minute. He's been, all been talking about coverings in general, but here covering is a cloth covering. Her hair is given to her instead of a cloth covering. So long hair will satisfy you critics who are complaining about women not showing their submission enough in church. Long hair will take care of that. We go to verse 16 and we'll finish up First Corinthians 11. But if anyone wants to argue about this, see there's the contentious people that are arguing with him. If anyone wants to argue about this, we we apostles, have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Now that no other custom should be translated as such, I'll prove that to you beyond a shadow of a doubt in just a minute. Holman Christian Study Bible, I don't think, did it right here. We have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. And what that means is we have no such custom of requiring cloth head coverings, nor do the churches of God. Well, let's start with the church, whatever the head covering is, it's the same in all the churches of God, because Paul appeals to the common practice in all the churches, it shows that there was a common basic practice. There was not anarchy amongst the churches, as a lot of house church, low church people like to say. It wasn't high church with liturgy and smells and bells, but it was still a certain basic common pattern. I've already quoted these verses to you. I'll quote them to you again. This was I quoted to you when he says, "Imitate me, even as I imitate you." 1 Corinthians 11:23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. So Paul passes on the Lord's supper tradition. 1 Corinthians 15:3. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Passed on—that's what tradition means that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So he passed on some teaching to him. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 Therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught either by our message or by our letter. And of course, Paul was a church planner. He dealt with church practice. And these traditions that he was passing on to them, he says it's, not, it's the same way in all the churches, folks. Don't go out and say, I can do it my way. I can do it my way. And you'll end up like Protestant Americans or Protestant Europeans. Now, now that we've finished going through the first 16 verses, now I want to deal with the problem that I haven't dealt with yet. What is the head covering? Is it hair or is it cloth? I remember I was in Africa on a mission trip. African woman, all African Christian women down there have head coverings. And she goes, well, she was talking to the head of the trip, who is now the head of a big evangelical Bible college. And she says to him, Brother, why do you Americans, you talk about you believe the Bible, but you women, you do not cover your hair. And I thought to myself, you got that right, sister. Explain that one to me. So I kept, I kept waiting to hear this Bible, co- soon-to-be Bible college president answer that one. He just blew it off. He wasn't going to deal with it. I don't think he could deal with it, to be honest with you. But I remember thinking, man, if some African sister wants to ask me a question like that, it's my job to try to give her a decent answer. Of course, it's taken me 20, 30 years later before I finally figured out what the answer is. And by the way, the answer came because of a man who got his master's degrees from my seminary, a man named Eric Svenson, who's a good friend of a friend of mine, and I've talked to him on the phone, he can't, he's a PhD in theology, came up with the answer, and I think it makes such good sense, I'm going to give you that solution. I really believe it's true. But at any rate, many people take it literally as a cloth covering, for example, Catholics, Amish, Mennonites, the African churches, as I mentioned, they say, Paul's talking about cloth covering. I'm going to show you that that doesn't make any sense. Well what's the other option? Hair covering. Well, if you look at the English, that doesn't make any sense either. And I've been torn twixt and between those two options for years. Can't figure out. I can't figure out how to explain the passage in a consistent way all the way through. Some people just try to avoid the problem I say, "Well, that was just culture back in Paul's time." But as I pointed out to you, angels. Because of the angels, that's not cultural. Nature teaches us that long hair is a shame on men and that a woman uncovered. Well, that's that's not cultural. That's nature. And how about man and woman is created? Man's created for the woman, woman's created for the man, and all that. God is the head of Christ. That's not cultural. That's the Godhead. That's creation. So I don't think it's cultural. Here's what the aforementioned Eric Svensson said about the cultural argument there is absolutely nothing in this passage to suggest that Paul sees a cultural limitation to his injunction about head coverings. On the contrary, every reason Paul gives for his injunction is arguably timeless and universal in scope. His reasons include the chain of headship, God, Christ, man, and woman, in verse 3, the priority of creation, in verse 8 and 9, man's created for a woman, the angels who would be offended, in verse 10, and nature itself, long hairs a disgrace for man, and nature itself, in verse 14. None of these things is temporary or culturally limited, but rather timeless, and indicate that Paul's injunction must be seen as timeless. So I'm going to take that to be true that Paul is talking about a timeless thing here. Now, before I give you, I go through the argument in more detail to show you that it's the hair that's, the, that's involved that Paul is talking about in, in place of, instead of the cloth covering, I need to point out a translation problem here. I, I mentioned it already. In the Holman Christian Study Bible, 1 Corinthians 11, 6, 16, Paul says, we have no other custom. That should be, we have no such custom. And I'll show you why that matters in just a minute. Now, what are the implications of this big argument here, whether it's hair covering or hair? Actually, it doesn't need to be a big deal on whichever side you you take it. Assuming if no one mocks or looks down on a sister who covers her head with cloth, and assuming that no one mocks or looks down on a sister who does not cover her head with cloth, there's no problem. Now there is a possible problem, I've seen this arrive. let's say a husband thinks the head covering is cloth, in my opinion that's wrong. But if he thinks that and then his, he requests his wife to wear one because of what he sees in the scripture, wrongly, but the wife is a good, obedient wife, and so she agrees to do it, but she doesn't buy into the decision, and so she starts joking about her doily and making fun of it. Well, now you're making a mockery of what some Christians consider very serious, and I don't think that's a good thing. It's not good at all. I think it's best to understand what's going on here. All right, well, let me give you the, I call it the Svenson solution in a nutshell, First of all, there was a contentious group of people. Remember in verse 15, if anyone wants to argue about this, Paul says, these contentious people had upset the Corinthian church. They agreed with Paul about the creation order of humanity, but they disagreed with the application of that truth. Now, Paul states the views he and the contentious ones had in common all the way up until about verse 11. Before verse 11, he talks all about the superior rank, not the superior worth now, but the superior rank and function of the husband, the leadership function of the husband, And then at verse 11, he qualifies that talk with women, talks about women being equal in status, as I've just pointed out to you. So he balances off the talk about uh, men being leaders and women being subordinate, so there was no confusion. And that's really irrelevant to the main argument here. What really happens here is when we get down to the application of this teaching of women's submission, women's equality of worth and subordination and function, when we get down here to the idea that women ought to cover their head with cloth. Paul says there's no need for this. We're going to verse 15. As I mentioned earlier, it says, Her hair is given to her instead of, anti, instead of a cloth. Now, in order to understand this argument more fully, we've got to understand that there's one English word used for covering, for six times the word is used in English. You see six words for covering. The first five is the word kataluptos, which means... A generic term for covering. We needs a covering, not doesn't say what kind of covering—plastic, metal, hair, or cloth. It just doesn't say. Just needs a covering. And then in verse 15, there's one use of that word covering, which is parabolios, which means a cloth wrapped around the head. That's that verse 15 I've already quoted to you. For her hair is given to her instead of a parabolios, instead of a cloth covering. So. I'm going to go through all the verses up to verse 13, five of them, where katakaluptos, covering in general, is used. And I'll show you that in some of those verses, hair makes no sense. In some of those verses, cough covering makes no sense. And this is why I've had such a hard time understanding this passage for years, because I didn't understand the Greek behind it. But generic covering in general makes sense in all five situations. So let's start. Chapter verse 5 in 1 Corinthians 11, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. If you say every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered with hair, in other words, with a bald head, she dishonors her head. Why would a woman prophesy bald with no hair? Does that make any sense? It makes no sense at all. Now, a cloth covering might make sense there. She prays or prophesies with her head without a cloth covering, that makes sense, but the word kataluptos doesn't say cloth covering. It means a covering in general, not a cloth covering. And of course, that makes sense. We go to verse 6. So if a woman's head is not covered, her hair should be cut off. So if a woman is not covered, if a woman is bald, if she's not covered with hair, let's take the hair interpretation first. If a woman's head is not covered with hair, her hair should be cut off. Does that make any sense? Why does a hair need to be cut off if she doesn't have any hair? That makes no sense at all how about cloth covering? So if a woman's head is not covered with cloth, her hair should be cut off. Why would you want to cut off a woman's hair if she didn't have a cloth covering on her head? She's already disgraced herself, but allegedly by not having the cloth covering on her head, and now you're going to cut her hair off and make her more ashamed? That makes no sense. But if you take it to mean covering in general, a woman's head is not covered, her hair should be cut off. In other words, she needs to have some kind of covering, because if not, her hair should be cut off, and that means that she should be Disgraced, because she doesn't have a covering. That makes perfectly good sense. The second part of that verse, verse 6, has another covered, cut a loop toss. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, should she should be covered. Well, let's try hair. If, a, if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, she should have hair. Well, that makes sense, because putting hair back on her head would get rid of the shame. So that makes sense for hair there. But how about cloth covering? Does that make sense? But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or, or her head shaved, she should have a cloth covering on her head. How is a cloth covering on top of a bald head or on top of a hair cut short? How is that going to get rid of her disgrace? That makes no sense. But if you take katalutas to mean what it means, general covering, it just means, hey, her head should be covered with something so she doesn't suffer the shame of being a prostitute or an adulterer. We go to 1 Corinthians eleven seven. A man, in fact, should not cover his head. Try to substitute hair. A man, in fact, should not have hair on his head because he is God's image and glory. Really? A bald man makes himself glorious before God because he's bald? That makes no sense. How about cloth curving? In that case, it does make sense. A man should not put a cloth curving on his head because he's God's image and glory. But now if you put curving as a general principle, a man, in fact, should not cover his head in general, generally speaking, well, that makes perfectly good sense. And that's what toss means. We go to our last instance in 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Try to substitute hair there. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with a bald head? Why would Paul be telling the sisters to, to don't come to church bald? I, don't, I think that's highly unlikely. That makes very little sense to me. Cloth covering will work there. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head not having a cloth covering on it? That would work there. So here's the summary for the first 13 verses of 1 Corinthians 11, where the word cut a loop toss is used for covering. In three of those instances, hair makes absolutely no sense. And one of those instances, cloth covering makes no sense. And one of those instances, neither hair nor cloth covering makes any sense. So that takes five, care of the five cut a loop toss. It can't be either hair or cloth covering. So it's a false dichotomy to try to assume either one. It just doesn't work. However, a word that means a general covering in general without specifying what kind of covering works fine for all five. And then this number six, the sixth use of covering is a cloth covering. We go to verse 15. I've repeated this verse. It's key about 10 times here. Let me repeat it again. For her hair is given to her instead of a cloth covering. And there you have it. That's why the head covering is hair given instead of a cloth covering that's not necessary. Now let's go down to one last point here in 1 Corinthians 11:16. For if, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice. Ooh, that sounds like, that's the ESV. That's the way it should be translated. The Holman Christian Study Bible has, we have no other practice. And that sounds like what Paul is saying. We have no other practice except to require a covering for the woman's head, a cloth covering for, for the woman's head. Her hair is given to her for a cloth covering, and we have no other practice except to require cloth coverings in all the churches. That can't be what it means. It means we have no such practice. We have no such practices of, of requiring a cloth covering on a woman's hair. Now, you could say Paul meant we have no other practice than to, than, than to allow hair to be a substitute for a cloth covering, so you could get around it that way, but there's no need to. Because the word does not mean other, it means such. Now, let me show you how strong the linguistic evidence is for that translation. In other words, this Holman Christian Study Bible is a terrible translation, as is the King James. The word is Toy utos, and there are a lot of translations that do translate it as other. I do not know why. Here's some examples. The NIV, the New Living Translation, the Berean Study Bible, the New American Standard Bible, the Holman Christian Study Bible, the Good News Bible, and the NET Bible, the NET Bible. Well, here's the arguments that that's bad translations should be translated as such. If you look in Strong's Concordance, you will find that never anywhere else in the NASB or the Holman Christian Study Bible, two of the versions that that Strong's uses, two of the English versions that Strong's deals with, in those two versions, the word is nowhere in the whole New Testament is never translated as other. It's always translated as such. Just in this one place is translated as other. Now, why would that be? As Eric Svenson ports out in the NASB and the Holman Christian Study Bible, it only means such. There is nothing else. There's no other meaning. And the KGV never translated, translates it as other, except, of course, in our contested passage here. Now, here are some versions that do translate it properly as such. We have no such practice of requiring a head covering. The ESV, the Berean Literal, the New King James, the King James, the New Heart English Bible, the Aramaic Bible in plain English, the Jubilee Bible 2000, the American KGV, the American Standard Version, the Douay-Rant Version, the Darby Version, the English Revised Version, Webster's Version, Weymouth Version, World English Bible, and Young's Literal. I looked up a lot of translations to make this point. How about some evidence, some lexicons? Here's Thayer's definition such as this, of this kind or sort. No mention of other. It means such. Strong's translates it as of this sort, like, such. Neither Strong's nor Thayer's even mentioned, so much as mentions the word other. So let's summarize all of this. I know it's a little bit complicated. This is a difficult subject. Here's a summary. Men at, being the head of women is a universal principle. That means husband head of wife is a universal principle. That principle was misapplied by a group that bothered the Corinthians. That contentious group required head coverings. Paul says, no need for head covering is because woman's long hair is given to her instead of a head covering. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope I've answered that hard question for you. Maybe so, maybe not, but I hope you enjoyed it anyway. And I hope you stay tuned for the next audio, which I will cover starting in verse 17 and go to the end of the chapter as Paul deals with the other another problem of church practice, which is the Lord's Supper and abuses thereof. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed this one.